This is a podcast about time. The time it takes to become an artisan. Heritage. Saving to buy something you'll keep forever. Sustainability. Memories attached to clothing that you've loved and lived in. And the longevity of friendship. To us, the true definition of luxury. I'm Lynn Coleman. Join me and my friend and colleague, Jill Brown, as we chat about the components about what makes Scottish cashmere so special, why it's loved by people all around the globe, and why every design house has a Scottish mill in their little black book. Johnsons of Elgin are known the world over as the experts in cashmere and fine woolens, standing strong for over two centuries. They've crammed a lot of learning in since their inception in 1797, like the importance of building your mill next to a river which carries only the softest Scottish water, or how to weave the landscape into every one of your products. This is why keeping manufacturing on home soil is integral to their product, heritage and provenance that you just can't buy. It's Johnson's values that have set them apart. Johnson's has assembled a community within a community, employing over a thousand people. At the heart of everything are the mill workers, each one proud of the part that they play in producing impeccable products. It's not unusual for employees to reach 50 years of service with pensioners coming back annually to celebrate with the textile institution, highlighting the love that the people have for the place. For 200 years, two families have owned and shepherded this bastion. They are the Johnsons and the Harrisons. One employee in particular has a special bond with the mill. Cherished childhood memories of running around gigantic ornate looms are peppered with those of cleaning tables in the cafe at the tender age of 10. No mean feat when there are 25,000 visitors a year coming through your doors. Jenny Holdsworth is part of a fourth generation of family ownership of Johnson's and she is a woman holding down the ethos set by her ancestors. Having worked in a number of departments over the past decade, it seems fitting that she now resides in HR, looking after learning and development like her forefathers before her. Here, heritage is not about nostalgia, rather it's the driving force for the future. Harnessing the wisdom gained from over 200 years in textile manufacturing ensures the company's continued prosperity. Walls steeped in history encase cutting-edge technology held within it, as being a family-run business means true independence to adapt, evolve and innovate. Their mastery in fabrics means that they can explore new horizons in luxury fabric while continuing to create extraordinary and beautiful world-class products. Being the only vertical mill still standing in Scotland allows Johnson's to keep an unwavering eye on everything that enters and leaves the mill, from the raw fabric in the wool stores to perfected garments on the showroom floor, from dyeing and blending, carding to spinning, winding to weaving, knitting and sourcing, milling and teaseling, cutting to folding. Every process happens in-house, and that is something that is really unusual. The cacophony of sound that rises from the tireless machines are the heartbeat of the business. The vivid dyes that bubble and steam, the colours stacked from the ceiling to the floor. For me, the sound of the looms are synonymous with the Scottish textile industry as a whole and the quality I see across all of these mills. Much like New York, with her signature sound being the siren, the boom of the looms is evocative of heritage and excellence, synonymous with Scotland. So for the uh, 
ill-educated. What What is a vertical mill? A vertical mill is a place that everything is made from start to finish. So the raw material comes in off the goat, shipped from Mongolia or whatever it is that they're sourcing it. Um, and then they make the raw material into spinning yarn. Then from there it is dyed. From there then it is woven into wool or cashmere or you know lambs whatever it is that they're doing and then they have the dyeing houses then they have the design aspects all the way through to the finished product so it gets knitted designed from source the whole the whole buna is done in-house and that's really really rare nowadays you see that um much more commonly overseas Uh, but actually in the uk we have very very little um vertical mills left because you can outsource it because it's really cheap and so they do that, and they've done that for 200 years. So they, they know what they're doing. They, yeah, they absolutely do, do know what they're doing. And and they um, have really placed importance on being able to view that process from start to finish. Um, and actually, you know, we've been talking a lot in this series about sustainability. Johnson's is some somewhere that you can pinpoint every aspect of the process from the one place, which actually makes it incredibly easy to check over for sta- for sustainability and how they're doing things. And it all happens here between Elgin and Hoyk. Um, so yeah, it's it's you know they're they're pretty formidable and they they have been doing That's this. such a short distance, isn't it? Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but when you think it's a big distance in a small country, but it's all done in one country. Like that never you know, when we're talking about sustainability and we're talking about knowing where things come from, my goodness, if you buy a Johnson's Velgan jumper or scarf or that's incredible this yeah. day and age, isn't it? The biggest carbon footprint is coming from getting the raw material. In- I imagine that comes in bulk, mm. you know, at the end of the combing season. Yeah. So you have I mean that's I didn't know that that's incredible and probably explains the price point then. Absolutely. So it's all integral and all done here and and again weighing up carbon footprint, weighing up um, everybody getting paid, you know, from the dyeing people to the weavers to uh, the designers, you know, all the way to the shop floor. And there's there's something about them keeping that process that actually has created a little magic around them, particularly, you know, over the last sort of 20 years where we've seen a resurgence in people understanding the importance of Scottish textiles, but them being the only place that that you can really achieve that is is pretty impressive. Uh, you know, we, we have um, Todd Duncan, which is up in Perth. They, they are wool suppliers. So actually nine times out of 10, our mills use Todd and Duncan and they're the ones that bring the, the the wool in and they do the dyeing and all that kind of stuff. And then that wool is then sold to the mills. But that's what I'm talking about, the, the outsourcing part. So there are still places that have that in, in Scotland and in the UK um, that they'll ship to each other. But yeah, on, one of the only vertical mills left still in the UK, which is, is uh, no mean feat. There's an article that I read um, in the New York Times, um, which made me really, really think about Johnson's. It was an article which was based around Scott Sternberg, who was the former owner of Band of Outsiders. Now, you'll remember them, that kind of mid-teens that we had this explosion of um, American designers from Zach Posen, that new guard of, of New York happening. Um, and he was part of that at Michelle Obama 
famously wore a couple of his dresses and, and it just blew up for him. Um, but they, they folded the company after they took investment. And this article actually talks a lot about COVID being the final nail in the fashion coffin. And it made me think again about luxury and the longevity of our own industry here in Scotland. Um, because what Scott was talking about in this article, which was very, very clever, was that within that decade, there was an, a, a kind of crazy pace being thrown onto the fashion circuit, not only for the designers, but the whole system that then works around it. So your buyers, your fashion journalists, the whole the whole hoopla that went with it. And then that happening twice a year at um, showing season. And I was yeah, I was a fashion journalist predominantly in that decade. That's that's when I was doing my the, the bulk of my writing. And I remember the fatigue and I wasn't doing it the way that, that half of these journalists were or half of these designers were. You know, I had the luxury and literally the luxury of being able to come home to Scotland and handpick the brands that I thought our readers here in Scotland would gravitate towards or, you know, the ones that, 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 we, that we worked with the most or that were sold here and that kind of stuff. And even me having a smaller scaled back schedule I was still in Milan and Paris and London and New York once a year. I couldn't, I couldn't do it twice a year. It just financially would completely cripple you. And if anybody thinks from this moment that a journalist's life or a fashion journalist's life is this, you know, coveted, lovely experience, it really is, don't get me wrong. But someone's buying you dinner, you know, a press agent or a, a brand, and you can barely pay your mortgage or your rent, you know, it was a real hand to mouth existence. So I'd be sitting, you know, with with these people that were selling things for hundreds of thousands of pounds and I'd barely be clearing rent at the end of the month. And this article goes in to talk about that, that there was this crazy speed and appetite for the shows. And that was twice a year. And then it started kind of eating itself because you always work a season behind. So if they were showing in February, that was for autumn, winter, the following six months time, February, 2020, right? You would have already have seen spring, summer in September of 2019. And September 2019's drop for spring would be after, just after the autumn, winter circuit. So you're seeing all the autumn, winter clothes and what was happening was nobody wanted to do that. They wanted to, to, to get hold of the stuff that they were seeing in real time. And we, we you know, we saw that over a, the, the last few years. Um, actually, Burberry were the first people to say, do you know what? As soon as the, the collection comes off the catwalk, you can buy it if you want. And that, you know, from someone who has written about fashion, that really frightened me because I understand that these things take time and process. And Jill, you make TV for a living. If I'd said to you that from inception of, you know, you work in development, so from inception of your idea, when you are pitching that, how long does it take to get onto a TV screen? Oh, over a year. Because obviously you have to make it, so you have to film it and you do that in real time. But yeah, no, you, if you're lucky a year, sometimes a couple of, you know, someone can like something and you go back and forth about what it's going to be. You maybe make a pilot or you make a taster. So it's something of that quality with that amount of money involved easily a year, a year and a bit. And so what we've done to fashion, you're talking about you have to go and film in real time. Clothes have to be made in real time. Mm. 
you know, they have to be designed and fabric sourced and physically made in real time. And then you need orders put in. So you would go, you would bankrupt the whole ecosystem if these people, you know, even, even all the way down to the high street, didn't think that there were X amount of customers. So there's a hypothesis around how many of that blouse you're going to sell and that skirt and those pairs of trainers. And the first initial orders will give you the taster for whether or not you should put more in, into production because that still takes time. And all of that needs to have a back end of, of logistics in place. So to say that a collection is available straight away without prep time and without consumers being able to buy into that, it felt very scary for me. Just to ask, so they, they just make the collection for the runway? Yes. And so there's, uh, yeah, that's it, they're samples. There's nothing ready to buy no. normally no. in the way it used to be. And then after it's shown, they then go away and spend the six months getting it ready, well, which the, is still very quick. Well, no, the sales team then, so can you, if you imagine, Fashion Week has turned into this Frankenstein beast. Fashion Week was about buyers and wholesalers. So designers would put on shows, not the way that you see them now. The majority of them 20, 30 years ago were behind closed doors. And it was a buying ex experience for um, department stores and boutiques where the consumer would then go. Because, you know, sometimes you could go straight to brands and buy, but nine times out of 10, you know, the, the, we, we were looking at this through very rose-tinted glasses now because of, of, of e-com. We're so used to buying straight away on e-com now. That didn't happen 20, 30 years ago. And so the fashion industry is, is trying to catapult itself to e-com ready status, which has really disrupted the whole industry. The whole point of a fashion week was so that you could sell to the buyers for department stores and boutiques. And then they would place an order. So, you know, uh, for, for example's sake, a Harvey Nichols would say, oh, all right, okay, we think our customer might like that skirt, that jacket, and they'll pick five pieces out of the 20 that are shown. And so they'll put an, a minimum order in of, you know, one in each size times how many of it is. And, that they and want. at that point, that feels much more sustainable, doesn't it? Because yeah. you're, you're ordering what you think you'll need. Which is going to get sold. Yes. Right? And so the biggest problem that then started to happen which is counterproductive for the whole point in luxury is that that speed and that want that uh, almost insatiable need to consume, which is just, which we're all booking at now meant that people were like, Oh, well, we just, we'll, we'll have all of it yesterday and we're not going to pay you designer until we can get that sold on the shop floor which really hurts young brands. And, you know, we, we think about young brands in a completely different way. I'm talking about Christopher Keynes and Holly Fulton's and Jonathan Saunders, you know, household names that we think are, oh, they, they could handle that. No, you can. You cannot handle that as a young business. So what do you mean when you say that? Are you saying that basically they're taking, so your, your big stores and your shops are taking things and then if they don't sell it, they just give it back? They want to give it back, yeah, and not pay for it. So then the designer is left with a whole heap of clothing that they've put into production, which is now out of season, that they can't shift on their own because they need the help of 
these other industries. And so that's what was happening. And that's why we saw the fatigue and all of it. And COVID is now the final nail in the coffin. And that's what this New York um, um, Times article was about. The fatigue of all of that, that COVID has done something. It's just escalated a, a problem that we were seeing over the last five years, certainly. Um, you know, Mark Jacobs, for example, had 250 stores across the world. Now he has four. And you think about that, that swelling for them to sh for it to shrink right back. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because you can totally see the the argument for that more shops, you'll sell more stuff. But my view on that is, and it, right or wrong is, surely that's diluting your luxury. You know, if, you know, there's a, a, a joy in going somewhere and special to get you know I love being somewhere knowing that's the only place I can get that thing mm. you know and then you're probably more likely to buy it you know my sister-in-law I took her to London when she was marrying my brother and I'd said for her wedding gift I wanted to buy her shoes I love shoes you know I love shoes she loves shoes and she is very petite to my very tall so I like to buy her I live vicariously through her in sky high heels and she, we really liked Sophia Webster, um, but I wanted her to be able to see them. And, to, you know, we could have bought them online, but it wouldn't have been the same way. I had to phone and make an appointment for us to go in. So already that feels very special. She tried the shoes on. She really liked them, but they were a wee bit out there. So she was like, do you think we could go and look? So we then walked sort of across through Knightsbridge and we went to uh, Harvey Nichols and we went to Harrods and we looked at all the other shoes but obviously nothing compared even the sort of Jimmy Choo's and the Manola Blonics the Sophia Webster shoe was just so out there mm -hmm. so we went back you know it was it was an event it was a moment and really? that's uh -huh, exactly it is a, a sentiment that we look back on all the time and every year she gets the reminder on her Facebook and she's like god do you remember that day that we did that and it, that's there's a joy in that that's luxury. That is, that's exactly what it is. And that's what I've been banging on about. It's not about, the, of course, it's about the cost of an item, but it's about exactly what you've just said. It's about building memories. Those shoes are going to be with her forever. She's not going to get rid of them. They're not going to end up in landfill. And you guys have had this beautiful bonding process over over something that was really lovely to do together. Those shoes have been on more times than her wedding dress have been on. You know, it's... She has, she's worn them a lot, and but that wouldn't have been the same, I don't think, if we'd had the choice of three Sophia Webster shops in Edinburgh. Yeah, okay. Or, you know, and, and that's my, I can totally understand the sort of economic argument for it, and that the more shops you have, the more stuff you'll sell. Mark Jacobs and Michael Kors, all these guys, you know, it's, it's just there and it's available all the time. And I think that that's... Feeding into that want to consume. That's that's very much what we're seeing the backlash against now. And I'm glad, I'm really glad of that. And I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't want any business to go under any, or any of that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's it's a really sad situation. But I, I'm with you that we really have to think through our needs and wants and why we pick and consume and, and just kind of simmer it down a bit I think you know if you think about even the high street brands that aren't surviving you know that's Kath Kidson gone Debenhams, I, oh, yeah I you know, know. All these the, these places that you know you go and but again you know Kath Kidson at the height of of her sort of fame I remember being a uh, mum and I always go away just before Christmas to do our Christmas shopping 
um, and we either go to St Andrews which is where I went to university or we go to York because we love York and we love going to Castle Howard. We were in York and um, went into Calf Kidson and my mum very generously she was like you know if you want a little something to remember the trip by please pick something and so I was looking at the purses and she was like I know I said I'd buy you a gift but not that and I laughed and I was like what I'm not paying that for not a leather purse and you know it's you know my mum's quite old school and what she thinks of as quality and she was just like I would happily pay that if it, for a leather purse 100% but no I'm not paying that for that and yeah exactly and I I just and and she was absolutely right she was absolutely right and so I have a counter argument to that 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 is absolutely a a completely rational thing to think but the process that Kath Kidson and the team would have had to have gone through to get that vinyl purse to that price point would probably have been extremely difficult in comparison to the cost that she then had, because she had how many bricks and mortar stores up and down the country. So when you weigh up, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not sitting here trying to make anybody feel sorry for a, a, those kinds of situations that people get themselves into, but how many vinyl purses does she have to sell to pay the rent across the UK? Hundreds, you know? And then the counter argument from your mum, quite rightly so, is, oh, I don't feel comfortable paying for something that's mass-produced at that price point that I think is probably going to fall apart in, you know, X amount of time in comparison to a different material that's more sustainable. So, yeah, but that, I just want yeah. to throw that. She, she is very much a, a Scottish mum and, and she just, she, you know, she she's not swayed by a label. Yeah. You know, she, she does look at the material it's made of, she does, and that's how she makes her decision. And when she's paying, that's absolutely, you know, when she's buying a gift and she's like, actually, I'm just not comfortable with that. 100% absolutely yeah. fine. But that was at that, you know, the height of Kath Kidson's heyday. You know, we, we had, the, you know, pre-COVID had to wait to get in the shop. It was so busy. And everybody had a little piece of her something. And the price point was high. It was high and it remained high. And now, you know, I've, we've sort of seen her. I, I used to work just around the corner from her store in Glasgow. And there was always this, you know, I, I, I have got a habit of buying a Cass Kids and Baby gift. Her baby stuff is lovely. But there was always a sale on. And, you know, that's not being in the world of fashion. For me, a little alarm bell. I was like, there's always a sale on in here. That's not a good sign. And that is exactly what I'm talking about the last decade and what that article talks about. This need to continually flood your own product with new product and the the madness of that you know it's um the, the article talked to, I laughed properly chortled out loud um when they referred to um fashion becoming Frankenstein because those two seasons that I was talking about spring summer summer runway autumn winter runway then ran into cruise and pre-season so they were creating up to six collections in a in a 12-month calendar so that the pressure on design teams and the finances would have been through the roof but that then meant that there was this weird schizophrenic pieces of clothing coming down the runway so for autumn winter or you know for pre-season going into spring summer there would be coats with no arms 
coats with no arms for winter, what? And boots that were peak toes. Because it, it, you weren't being, you weren't thinking about what you needed that item for. Do I need a new coat because it's going to be snowing and raining? Yes, I do. So that gets checked off. Do I need a new coat every month? No, you don't. But that's what we were being force fed. That's the hamster wheel of, ah, could I do this? And so slowly, the consumer started to do exactly what you're saying. Well, there's going to be sales all the time because these th these businesses just continued to churn out new, 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 and nothing was being valued in any way, shape or form. And I'm talking about the high-end luxury brands all the way down to our fast fashion e-coms that, you know, now we're getting backlash against, but they're still raking it in, you know, and that's not sustainable. And the, the really sad thing about that is that a couple of years back, I interviewed um, Patrick Grant, um, you know, of Sewing Bee fame for my column. He was up in Glasgow because he'd just done his diffusion line for Debenhams. And I had a really great working relationship with Debenhams, still do. I'm very, very sad about the current situation that's kicking on there. Um, but Patrick had just launched Hammond & Co in, in Debenhams. And so I sat down and had a coffee with him because I was going to do a, a column on it. And we spoke for like an hour and a half and he's a, he's a really, really switched on savvy guy. Um, had been in business for a little bit, but wasn't a fashion designer, had come at it from a, a different angle. And he told me this story um, about a mill that I actually used. So he got his cashmere jumpers from the same place that I got mine, which is William Lockie. They're based in Hoyk. They're incredible. They're, again, over 200 years old. We'll get onto that on another podcast. William Lockie will have their own. But he was saying that as part of his Savile Row um, setup, he wanted to be able to sell extra bits and bobs off the back of that. And so he went to William Lockie and they created a, you know, a kind of classic sweater, cashmere sweater. And the department stores went nuts for it, particularly in New York. I can't remember which department store it was. It was one of the, you know, one of the big ones. They put their first orders in for his jumpers. And because it was made in Scotland, 100% Scottish cashmere, America has a really big appetite for things that we make. So they were on to a you know, win-win situation. But Patrick was savvy and he was saying to me, you know, I was only going to do them in colours that I was comfortable. So those classics, navy, black, cream, that was it. Grey, I think. So the next again season, this big department store was like, we want to place another order, but we want to custom the colours. And he was like, okay. And he'd never done this before. This was, the, you know, this was brand new to him. So he was like, all right, fine. So they put crazy colour orders in. And he was like orange and like lime green or whatever for men's or for the menswear floor and he thought they're they're ordering so it's fine and they didn't sell and they wanted to send them back to him young designer who can't afford to do that you know the, the, he took a punt and gave him the, the, the them the jumpers that they said that they thought their consumers would love their customers would love those things turns out they didn't know their customer they were just they just wanted what they wanted right so they dropped him. They dropped him from their floor, which really hurt financially and ego-wise. And it made him dig down into a, a, a business strategy that was, I am no longer going to be swayed by a buyer. I'm not going to be told to do exclusives. I'm not. I'm just, what you see is what you get. And if you want that, great. If you don't, 
that's just what it is. And a couple of seasons later, the department store came back and they were like, hi, can, 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 we would love to do another order. And he was like, no, absolutely not. And he wouldn't work with them again. And I, you know, I was sitting there uh, a very, at the mid section of my uh, fashion career, my fashion writing career, just before I'd gone to work with the mill. And I knew about this. I knew about this pressure for young businesses and even established businesses to kind of kowtow to the pressures of selling units into department stores for that kudos of being able to say, ah, I'm stocked at Barney's, I'm stocked at Saks, I'm stocked at Harrods, whatever it is. Forgetting that their business model is completely different to your own business model and you end up getting stung. And when I did my own capsule, my own jumper capsule to sit alongside the book that we're talking about just now, I had a showroom in Milan who were really excited about the jumpers and it, it all kind of happened organically. And so I had these six jumpers that sit inside the, this book, which is a cable knit, uh, houndstooth, uh, argyle, a t-shirt, a uh, wrap and a hoodie. And the whole point of talking about them was that these are classic pieces that regardless of whether or not actually you're going to buy them in cashmere, these are staple jumpers that you should just have in your wardrobe, whether or not they are lambswool, whether or not that doesn't, it doesn't matter what they are. These are, these are the things that you're going to wear over and over and over and over again. And if you can get them in cashmere, even better because you'll be super warm. And so the selling agent in Milan was amazing. And I had um, some help from the ex-head of sales for Pringle of Scotland, a really lovely guy who lived in Switzerland. But they were also excited and flaky and wanting new things and more and blah. And, and it was so dizzying that I had these six jumpers ready to go. And when they hit the shop floor, and not the shop floor, when they hit the sales floor in the sales room, and the height of summer, we're selling for the next again summer season. And they wanted me to do that. This is this is cr crazy bonkers, right? It's like 30 degrees in Milan, selling for the next again summer season. And I was like, should we not wait until the autumn winter showcase? Like, you know, and I think it was only going to be six weeks time. And they were all like, no, let's put this stuff out now because those are the same buyers that are going to come through again in six weeks. I'd never done this before. So I was like, okay. Fair enough. And of course, nobody was looking to buy cashmere jumpers. And so the, 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 the selling, the, the sales room were like, yeah, we're probably, there's no point in, in keeping you because you didn't sell. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I didn't sell into spring, summer when I'm selling jumpers for the winter. <laughs> How was I stupid enough to be led into this bonkers scenario where actually I should have just said no I'm you know I was selling a book and it was a different ball game and I, you know I'd already I'd already um confirmed I was in House of Fraser's I'd sold into like three other boutiques so I was selling across the UK um and then I was selling to, to um America on the dot com and it, I was only ever going to be doing a one season run it was only ever meant to be a really small capsule just so that I could kind of tick off a bucket list thing almost, you know? It meant that I could properly understand for the first time what it was like to go from start to finish. So that stay in Milan for the selling season for spring, summer, obviously wasn't going to work for a woolly jumpers, you know? Mm. The world's warmest jumpers. Yeah, the world's warmest jumpers. Um, but actually it was my very mill, William Lockie, that gave me the best advice 
that I took out of the whole process. And I will tell you about that in the William Lockie podcast, which is coming up shortly. Join us for the next episode where we'll be talking about Lockharen.